Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Daily Daf Differently. I am Rabbi Daniel Chorney. Today, we'll be learning Daf Mem Gimel 43 of Tractate Nedarim, which deals with vows. Our sugya actually begins on the bottom of Daf Mem Bet Amud Bet, page 42b, with the beginning of the sixth Mishnah of chapter 4. This Mishnah details a further set of limitations a person incurs when they are mudar hana'a mechavero, prohibited by means of a vow from enjoying anything belonging to their fellow. In such a case, the madir, the one prohibiting the mudar, may not lend or accept a loan from the mudar. Neither can she sell or buy from him. Rashi clarifies that the difference between the wording of she'ela and halva'a which are both translatable to English as lending or borrowing, depending on conjugation, that is, is that she'ela refers to the lending or borrowing of stuff, say a cow or an appliance, and halva'a designates the lending or borrowing of currency. Turning now to the beginning of Mem Gimel Amud Aleph, page 43a, the Gemara raises two objections about the mission's formulation. First, while it makes sense that a madir may not lend money to a mudar, because that would benefit the mudar, what benefit is there if the madir borrowed money from the mudar that it should also be prohibited? And second, while we may accept that a madir may not borrow money from a mudar or purchase items from him, what possible benefit could there be for the mudar if the madir were to borrow an item from him? Before we continue through the sugya we must acknowledge the difficulty of the second objection. One would expect the Gemara to respond to the first objection before we may understand how the Gemara can grant that the substance of the first objection, namely that the Madir borrowing money from the Mudar is beneficial to the Mudar, is the basis for the second objection. Fortunately, Rashi fills in this gap by constructing a scenario where a Madir might borrow some old coins from the Mudar, and then pay the mudar back with newer coins that, ostensibly, if not actually, are of greater value than the original coins that the madir borrowed. Additionally, Rashi is left to explain the second clause of the second objection, that the madir may not purchase from the mudar, as referring to a case where the mudar is selling something for which there is no actual demand, zvina rame al-ape. In that case... The purchase of an item from a mudar would certainly benefit the mudar because any amount she receives for the item will be profit in a market where the current value of the item is zero. With these scenarios in mind, we can see how the objection is raised. Unlike the lending of money, which can result in a net gain to the mudar from the madir because newer coins are more valuable than older ones, on the purchase of an item at a premium, there is no change in value of property if the exact item is returned to its owner after it was borrowed. 
In response to these objections, the Gemara cites two sages, Rabbi Yossi ben Rabbi Hanina, second generation Eretz Israeli Amora, proposes that the Mishnah's formulation is actually referring only to a case where the Madir and the Mudar are mutually prohibited from deriving benefit from each other. In other words, the vow excludes the Madir from benefiting from the Mudar as much as it does the Mudar from the Madir. Abaye, the fourth generation Babylonian Amora, disagrees with this rationale and substitutes his own that the prohibition of the Madir from borrowing items from the Mudar is merely a gezerah, lest he come to lend items to the Mudar. That is to say, while there is no deoraita prohibition against a Madir borrowing stuff from a Mudar, it is proscribed midarabanan in order to prevent laxity that might ultimately result in a deoraita transgression. The Sudya then closes with what appears to be a continuation of Abaye's statement, affirming that this reasoning explains all of the f- other prohibitions in our Mishnah. The Madir may not purchase from the Mudar, because the Madir may eventually come to sell to the Mudar, and so forth. We are then presented with the rest of the Mishnayot from the fourth chapter. For the sake of time, we can summarize the content of these passages as dealing with what happens when a Mudar has a need that only her Madir can fulfill. The Mishnah presents various schemes where a Madir engages a third party in order to allow the Madir to provide for the Mudar without affecting a transgression. One example will suffice. If the Mudar needs food, the Madir may go to a shopkeeper and say, Hey, so-and-so is a Mudar Hana'a to me. He needs food, and I don't know what I can do about it. The shopkeeper may take the hint and provide food to the mudar, and later exact payment from the madir. The reason why this works is because the shopkeeper is not acting as an agent for the madir when he provides the food. Had the madir said that he would pay for the food for the mudar, that would be tantamount to the madir providing of his own resources through an agent, which is still forbidden by the neder. This is kind of like when a person wants a Gentile to turn their lights on for them on Shabbat. Instead of saying, please turn the lights on for me, he might try to drop a hint by saying something like, boy, it's dark in here, so that the Gentile is not acting as an agent, but rather of her own accord. The last case in the Mishnah is the seed for the ensuing discussion in the Gemara. There, we have a scenario where the Madir and the Mudar are walking together with no one else around. They sit down to lunch when they realize the Mudar has no food. So, the Madir takes some of his food and sets it down on a rock or some other topographical feature and declares, These are Hefker, free for whomever desires them. And the Mudar may take them for himself as they no longer are the property of the Madir. The Mishnah closes by mentioning that Rabbi Yossi fourth generation Tana, believes this scheme is asur, or forbidden. The Gemara picks up with Rabbi Yochanan, a second generation Eretz Israeli Amora, proposing that Rabbi Yossi's disagreement is based upon a belief that, just as a gift is not actually a gift until it reaches the hands of its intended receiver, so too an item is not hefker, ownerless, until it has been taken by one who acquires it, the zoche. Following this reasoning, the food from the rock still belongs to the madir, 
until someone comes along to pick it up, which in effect renders this as a direct transfer of goods from the Madir to the Mudar. Now Rabbi Abba, the third generation Eretz Israeli and Bavli Amora, objects to Rabbi Yochanan's proposition on the basis of a Brita, where Rabbi Yossi explicitly explains that he only thinks the Hefker case doesn't work when the vow preceded the declaration of Hefker. Therefore, says Rabbi Abba, if you say that it has to do with Hefker status only being affected once the property reaches the possession of the one who acquires it, what difference would it make if the declaration of Hefker comes before or after the vow? The property would still belong to the Madir until the Mudar picks it up, no matter if the vow was made after the object was declared Hefker. Immediately, Rabbi Abba provides a retort to his own objection to preserve Rabbi Yochanan's proposition. He says that people do not include what they declared to be Hefker in the property they consider when they make vows. So, when the Madir declares something to be Hefker prior to making the Neder, he doesn't have that in mind as property that the Mudar may not benefit from, and Rabbi Yossi would allow the Mudar to partake of that Hefker property. But if the vow comes before a declaration of Hefker, then that property is included in the vow, and remains the Madir's property until it is claimed by another, and Rabbi Yossi prohibits the Mudar from acquiring it. Just when it seems that Rabbi Yochanan's explanation of Rabbi Yossi's ruling is going to be accepted, Rava, the fourth-generation Babylonian Amora, brings another objection to it, citing a Braita in Baba Batra on page Kuf Mem Chet Amud Bet 148b. There, the case is brought of a person who is ill and, afraid he is going to die, he writes down that a part of his property is to be given to a person let's call him Reuven, and that the rest of his property should go to a second person, whom we'll call Shimon. Lo and behold, the individual recovers from his illness and wishes to retract the gifts. According to the Brita, Reuven has acquired his portion irrevocably, but Shimon has not. I must admit that it took me a long time to understand how this source contradicts Rabbi Yochanan, so please bear with me as I try to explain it. Remember that Rabbi Yochanan's reasoning for Rabbi Yossi's rejection of the case, where the Madir simply declares some of his food hefker, or ownerless, so that the Mudar can claim it, is that the property never really becomes hefker until it reaches the hands of the one acquiring it, analogous to how a gift is not actually a gift until it has transferred from the giver to the receiver. Now, in the Brita cited by Rava, the sick person is clearly making a gift to Reuven that has a bearing on what property he intends to give to Shimon upon his death. If the property belongs to Reuven, even though the sick person doesn't die, then we have a transfer of ownership without an actual delivery of property from one person to another. The sick person's intention to let Reuven have some of his things, which was defined sufficiently to point out the rest of the property he intended to give to Shimon, that intention is sufficient to effect a transfer even though Reuven did not receive the objects physically and the person didn't actually die. So, we have a gift without actual transfer from giver to receiver, and by analogy, we should be able to have a declaration of healthcare without the Zohet taking ownership of the object. And so, having rejected Rabbi Yochanan's proposition, Rava supplies his own. For Rava, the reason that Rabbi Yossi doesn't allow for the transfer from Madir to Mudar, 
by means of a declaration of Hefker is because he wants to prevent Midarabanan, a case similar to that presented in the sixth Mishnah of chapter 5, where a certain person in Beit Choron tried to give away property to a friend in order to allow his Mudar father to attend the celebration of his son's wedding. When the friend declared that he'd like to dedicate that property to the temple, the original owner protests that he only gave the friend the property in order to allow his father to attend the wedding. The rabbis declare that this is not a real transfer because, if it were, the friend could do whatever he pleases with it. For Rabbi Yossi, according to Rava, it is too unclear if the declaration of food to be hefker is real if it is obvious that the reason the Madir is making the declaration is only so that the Mudar can take the food. Therefore, to avoid the potential pitfall, Rabbi Yossi needs to forbid it, even if it were a real effective declaration. This concludes our sugiya. The end of Mem Gimel leads into Mem Dalid, and so it will be discussed in the next episode. This has been Daily Daf Differently. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.